0: Good morning, Westridge. You know, it, it, um, I love the second service because the second service is always a fun one, right? I mean, as a church family, y'all have had your sleep, you've had your coffee, you're ready to listen and learn and have a little fun today. Uh, Pastor Brian and I hit it off so well when he heard that I was an Ohio State Buckeyes fan, he was just drawn to me um, as a Michigan fan. And I told him at least once per service today, the words Go Bucks need to be mentioned from this stage as my Michigan man over here would, uh, would hate. Um, but I would love, you met my wife, Danielle. Uh, I, my little girl, Casey, is 10. She's not here today. My son, Christian, turns 13 on Thursday. And I hate that my kids aren't with me today because those of you who are parents will know um, life just isn't the same when your kids aren't around. Uh, and when they are around, everything's a little more fun a little more memorable. The memories are a little crisper when your kids are able to be with you because of the little things that they do in the course of day, the day, and in the course of life to, to make you remember those things. And one of the most memorable moments with my son actually happened 10 years ago when he was three. I got a call from some friends uh, who were playing slow pitch softball. They had a double header one night and they were short a man and they called and said, hey, do you want to come out uh, and play some slow pitch softball with us? I said, I'd love to. So I came out and my wife, Danielle, went and my son, Christian, came. Uh, my daughter, Casey, I think was maybe a year old and we brought her and, and her little carrier. Uh, and you can imagine the in the Midwest, the hot summer of the Midwest, it was so dusty. It was filthy. We played, I think, for almost four hours from six to ten, um, two softball games. And by the, by the end of the time we got done playing... Uh, I was filthy, just covered head to toe in dirt. In the entire time that I was playing softball with, uh, with my friends, my son brought his little plastic bat. He brought his little baseball. Uh, this year as a 12-year-old, he played about 65 games. He, he loves baseball. He's, he's been carrying around a bat and a glove and a ball since... I can remember. Um, He brought his bat. He brought his ball. And by the time the game was over, he was covered in head, uh, in dirt from from head to toe. And when we finally got home that after that that evening, uh, I knew that I needed to take a shower and go to bed. Christian needed to take a bath and go to bed. And we decided um, to just have one of those cool father son moments. So we made this massive bubble bath in our master bath that that had, I mean, like 18 inches high of bubbles. We poured all Christian's toys in it, all the Hot Wheels, all the Batman, all the Spider-Man. And we just had a great time kind of hanging out, um, playing in the bubble bath together. We, we raced cars and ramped cars up and out of the tub. Batman and Spider-Man fought to the death. Superman, I think, got in on the action a little bit. Uh, we made Santa Claus beards with the bubbles, and we made kind of George Washington hair with the bubbles. It was just one just one of those great memorable nights. Uh, When we got out of the bathtub, I taught Christian for the first time how to wrap his towel around his waist like a man. I kind of, you know, took one and kind of folded it in half so he could put it around his waist. And I showed him how to shave for the very first time. He kind of sat on the sink. And it was just one of these nights that you'll never forget. And then we went into our master bedroom. Uh, and I don't know if you're like us, but we have all these pillows on our bed that you're not allowed to sleep on. Does anybody else have like pillows that like are, they're, they're, they're just for show? Like every night you take them off the bed um, and you set them nice and gently on the floor. And then every morning you put them back on their pillows, but you never use. So we have this big pile of pillows that we never use sitting on our bed. And it just looked like an inviting place to throw my little three-year-old son as we were having the time of our life. So I kind of launched him onto the bed he picked up a pillow and hit me, and we started having like this epic pillow fight there on the bed, and yeah, you know, I'd hit him with a pillow, and he'd hit me, and then I'd hit him with a pillow, and he'd, he'd try to kick me, and then I'd hit him with a pillow, and like he'd slap me, then I'd hit him with a pillow, and he'd like punch me with a closed fist, and like he, like, he was trying for blood, and eventually I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to let him win, so he got me with a pretty good pillow over the head, and I kind of crashed on the bed like he had knocked me out. And unbeknownst to me, his next move was a cannonball into the middle of my back. So I'm laying on the bed, and my three-year-old son literally tries to break my spine in two. And I mean, comes down hard on me. And I don't know why I thought this, but when he hit me, it, it didn't hurt, but it was pain. Like, it, it, I thought, ouch. And my plan was, and I still to this day don't know why, but I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act like I'm dead. I'm going to make him think that he killed me. Now... What part that plays in raising a son, I'm not sure. But if that, it seemed like a good idea at the time to act like I was laying there dead. And, and I guess I just wanted to see, maybe I have low self-esteem. and wanted to see how much he loved me. But I, I guess I wanted to see how quickly he would race to his mom and say, that, like, dad's dead. I killed that. Um, you know, and, and so I'm laying there and he kind of nudges me, you know, dad, I hear his little voice, dad, kind of nudges me and nothing. I, he, he's going to think he killed me with that cannonball. So he nudges me again, dad kind of pokes me on the head, dad. And then, and then it's kind of quiet. And I thought I oh got now, now I've broken his heart. I mean, what kind of a sadistic father am I, right? Like I'm thinking now I've got him. The next thing I know, he's digging his fingers in my ears, right? He's like, yeah, he's not so sure that I'm out. So I kind of, I managed to get my ear under my shoulder. And then he started like gouging at my other eye. So I managed to kind of get a pillow over my eye where he couldn't like invade my body in any way um, in this pillow fight and then it got real quiet and I thought okay now he's going to tell his mom uh, only to have another cannonball bang in the middle of my back maybe he thought that's how I knocked him out that's how I can wake him up I don't know Um, didn't work but I was able to lay real still and I thought okay now he's got to go call his mom. Like, I'm just waiting to hear my son cry out for me, you know? I'm waiting for my wife to come rushing in to save me, and the room is eerily quiet, and it's eerily still. Like, I can tell he's on the bed, but I don't know what he's doing. He's not poking me. He's not prodding me. He's not touching me. He's not talking to me, and I'm laying there thinking, what is, what is he doing? Did he leave? Did he not leave? I'm trying to feel if he's moving a little bit, and all of a sudden, I felt something on my back, and I thought, okay, that's, what is that? And as I feel it kind of go up my back, I turn and I look, and he has opened up his towel and he's peeing all over me. Just all just He's got this massive smile on his face, and he's just urinating all over me in my bed. I don't know if he was thinking, Dad's not dead, this'll get his attention. Or if he's just a sadistic three-year-old who was desecrating my corpse. I don't know. But but he's standing there. And he's just peeing on me. And I couldn't help but laugh and think I'm never going to forget this moment. Now, I tell you that story to tell you this. In that story and in the story of our life, it's funny how pain always changes the direction of a story. Pain always changes the direction of a story. Pain always changes the direction of your story. And some of you are in here today and you started down a path in life that was a fun pillow fight path. You, you started down a marriage path that was happily ever after. You started down a parenting path where you were going to raise the greatest kids that love God who had ever existed on planet earth. You started down an employment path. You started down um, a physical fitness path. You started down a financial path. You started down this great path of life that pain interrupted. And pain has changed the direction of your story, And the ending that you wrote is not going to be written and you're not even sure kind of how to get back on the page. Pain always changes the direction of a story. Uh, I didn't plan for that story to end with my son urinating all over me, laying on my bed. But pain, the cannonball to my back, changed the course of the fun that we were having. But pain does not have to be the point of your story. See, pain changes the destination Or Pain changes the direction of your story, but pain does not have to determine the destination of your life And as I talk to you today, that's what I want to teach you about as we get ready to open our bible Is the fact that pain may have changed the direction of your story But pain does not have to determine the destination of your life and pain does not have to be the point of your existence And some of you are here today and you're in some type of pain Some of you are here today and you're suffering in some way There are some people who are not here today because of their suffering, because pain has changed the direction of their story. There are some people who are going to watch this service online today, who some pain in their life yesterday or last night or this week kept them from coming to church. And there were others of you who weren't going to come today because of some type of suffering you're undergoing, who ended up showing up because God wanted you to hear that pain may have changed the direction of your life, but it doesn't have to determine the destination of your life. As we've been going through this series at West Ridge that I'm stepping into today, we've been focusing on hope. And if there was an official title for my message this morning, it would be hope colon greater than suffering. But I, I'm a little more simple than that. I was raised in a very small town in southern Ohio, kind of a, a redneck town in, in the sticks just north of the Ohio River. I like to speak Plainly, So hope colon greater than suffering colon to me sounds like a body part and I don't really understand it as a figure of speech So the big idea that I want you to capture this morning is basically very simply this there's hope In the midst of suffering and if you're taking notes or if you're typing in your phone Or you're doing something to follow along I want you to write down today's big idea and I want you to understand that there's hope In the midst of suffering and as we open our Bible today in the midst of this series, I want to show you that from 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, if you're dialing it up on your phone or on your tablet, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 so you can follow along. And I want to teach you today three things about suffering that I, that I pray will give you hope. And it's interesting because hope is, kind of the, um, hope is kind of the Chris Bosch of the big three, scripturally. Like, hope is the one that like, doesn't really matter. Um, for those of you who understand basketball a little bit, the Apostle Paul said in First Corinthians 13 that there were three things in Christianity that endure forever. Faith, hope, and love. And we talk a lot about faith. We base our entire existence on faith. We talk a lot about love, but we don't talk so much about hope, even though it's one of the big three. And sometimes we don't have so much hope, even though it's one of the big three. And we find out in Scripture that those three work together. But here's what I want you to do. Here's where I want you to zone in before we get going today. If your goal this morning is to be touched by God rather than just taught God's word, then I need you to put a name or a face to your suffering. And here's what I mean by that. We can have a little Bible study and we can learn some stuff today about suffering biblically and it, it'll be good. It'll be good knowledge to have. But if we can put a name on our suffering, if, if we can today be honest enough to say, God, here's Here's what I'm struggling with. Your life can be touched rather than taught. And if you can put a face to your suffering, mean, meaning, God, I'm not suffering today, but I know somebody who is, then your life can be touched rather than taught today. And here's what I mean what, what name would you give your suffering today? Are you suffering relationally when you look at your life, when you look at your friendships? When you look at the relationships that surround you, is there some pain in your relationships? Are you suffering emotionally? Some of you have had a hard week. Some of you have had a hard summer. Some of you have had a hard year. And if we were to be really honest in a room this size, some of you have had a hard life. And just emotionally, it's hard. And you're suffering. Are you suffering financially? Did you have this master plan that you were going to carve out and that 2014 you were going to be in such and such a place financially only to find yourself nowhere close and you live life suffering in the financial mess that you're living in is it your marriage there are some people in here today I, I know who are suffering in their marriage if you would just be real honest you don't need to learn a lesson about suffering you need to learn what God has to say about your marriage today there are some of you you're suffering in your parenting Like I said, you you started your kids on a track that they haven't followed or maybe your kids are struggling with some kind of Sickness or illness or maybe you've experienced some type of tragedy Is it your job? Are you suffering? at your job Are you dreading the alarm clock going off tomorrow where you have to get up and go back to work? If you put a name to your suffering I think today you can be touched by god rather than taught by god or if you put a face to your suffering Maybe you're not suffering today, but your husband or your wife is. If you can think about them while we learn today, you can be touched and you can touch them. Maybe your kids are suffering today. Man, I hate to see when my kids are wronged. Maybe your kids have been wronged by a teacher or by a coach, by a boyfriend, by a girlfriend, by a boss, by a neighbor, by a friend. And today your kids are suffering. Maybe today your parents are suffering. Maybe some of you like me are in your mid-30s and you're watching your parents age and illness and sickness and tragedy is coming into the midst of your family and you're watching your parents suffer. Maybe it's your neighbors. You've seen a neighbor lose a job. You've seen a neighbor lose a friend or lose a spouse or lose their marriage. Maybe today it's your boss. You go into work and you see the pain that your boss is in day after day after day and you just wish you could do something. Or maybe it's a coworker. or maybe you run a business and it's one of your employees. See, today if we can go from learning about suffering To applying what we learn about suffering I think we can be touched by God rather than taught by God And as we hopefully today are touched by God Here's what I want you to remember As you picture your suffering Or as you picture the face of someone who's suffering Would you remember today There's hope in the midst of suffering And God's word in 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that Now here's what I'm going to do this morning As I teach you I'm going to give you kind of the point that the Apostle Peter is making And then we're gonna read a few verses. If you're taking notes, you'll jot down and then we'll look in scripture and we'll keep our Bibles open the entire time as we study God's word together. Here's the first thing we learn about suffering from God's word and hope in the midst of suffering. We learn, number one, that suffering does not mean that God has abandoned you. Suffering in the life of a Christian, suffering in the life of a believer, suffering in the life of somebody who is not a Christian doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Look at verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter chapter 3 and get your pen out and get it ready because I'm going to have you circle some words. The apostle Peter says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. Now there's two words in here that are contrasting words that happen in the same season of life and I want you to circle them. In verse 14, we see the word suffer. But if you should suffer, circle that word suffer. And then later in verse 14, it says you will be blessed. Circle the word blessed. Now we don't often use the words suffer and bless together in our vocabulary because they don't go together. And we rarely use them together in our theology, meaning our understanding of God, because they don't go together in our theology either. When I was in Bible college, I had a professor who gave me the task of writing a paper on the theology of the Psalms. Now, at that time, as a young kid from Southern Ohio, I wanted to be a football coach. Uh, I wanted to be a history government teacher. That was kind of my goal in life. I wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps. When I decided to go into ministry, I knew very little about anything Bible, theology. And when I was tasked with writing a paper on the theology of the Psalms, I thought those should be two different classes, theology and Psalms. And what I understood is the word theology basically means a knowledge of God or a proper understanding of God. And my professor was telling me he wanted me to read the book of Psalms and tell him what I thought the book of Psalms told me about who God was. And most Christians don't get past Psalm 1 in our understanding of who God is. And here's how Psalm 1 reads, "'Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers, the wicked are not so.'" But they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If we stop right there, the theology, the understanding of God we get from Psalm 1 is this. Do good and you'll be blessed. Do wickedly and you'll suffer. And most of us stop right there in our understanding of who God is. When we're doing good, we're blessed. And when we're blessed, we must be doing good. When we do wickedly, we're gonna suffer. And when we're suffering, We must be doing something wrong. God must have abandoned us in some way. But that's not what the theology of the Psalms is saying at all. As a matter of fact, if you read them as a book instead of individually, in Psalm 1, David sets forth this premise God, here's my belief. If you do good, you're blessed. If you do wicked, you're cursed. But if you read the rest of the Psalms, you see David saying, That's what I think, but that's not what's happening. God, I'm doing good and I'm suffering. God, they're, that's a bad person, and they're doing good. And all throughout the Psalms, for 150 of them, David says, I thought that if you did good, you were blessed, and if you were suffering, you must be doing something wrong. But God, that's not the way it appears in life. And David kind of, his life experience unravels his shallow theology that if I'm suffering, I must be doing something wrong. Job would go through a time of suffering as a righteous man. And as he began to verbally give us his emotion and what he was wrestling through in the book of Job, Job makes statements about the reality of difficult life even while trying to live for God like Job 5-7 he says, man is born to trouble. Even righteous people, even people who are close to God are going to encounter trouble. He says in Job 7.3, a verse I keep close to me in difficult seasons, I'm allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. As a righteous man, as someone trying to stay close to God, in this fallen world where suffering is prevalent, I am apportioned difficult nights and difficult months. Suffering doesn't mean that God is absent As a matter of fact, life contains suffering But it doesn't mean that God isn't with you Jesus said it this way in John 16, 33 Jesus said, I've told you these things so that you may have peace In this world, you're going to have trouble You're going to suffer in this world But take heart, I've overcome the world So Peter uses these two words Suffering and blessing They really don't go together Jesus uses these two words Trouble, suffering, and peace They don't really go together But what we learn is that while we're suffering, it doesn't mean God has abandoned us. It may mean that God is closer to us than we could ever imagine. Secondly, when we suffer, you find out things about God through suffering that you would never know otherwise. And it's interesting how the Apostle Peter lays this out to us, that you find out things when you're suffering, you find out things about God that you could never really know unless you've gone through a time of suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, let's continue through this text. The apostle Peter says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that's in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, I want you to circle three words in this text that we just read. First, in verse 15, I want you to circle the word honor. But in your hearts, honor. That word honor literally means create a unique place for. Create a special place place for. Set aside some turf that only he can have. The apostle Peter is saying, when we suffer, something is created inside of us. A place for Jesus to dwell is created inside of us that we would have never known if we wouldn't have gone through suffering. People who have suffered have a special place in their life where Jesus dwells and hangs on to them while they hang on to him. Some of you have friends who aren't at church today who maybe are far from God Who who aren't close to jesus and maybe they're not in the whole christianity thing and they're suffering and you've been trying to help You've been taking meals. You've been making phone calls. You've been sending encouraging text messages. You've been buying gifts You've been going over to visit you've been trying to fill a special place in their life That only jesus can fill while they suffer And some of you have been wonderful at trying to meet the needs of people who are suffering, but maybe you need to go to the next step and you need to tell them about Jesus. Maybe you need to take the next step and you need to invite them to church because suffering creates a special place in us that only Jesus can fill. And what happens when that special place is filled with Jesus? Well, a couple things happen. I want you to circle the word gentleness at the end of verse 15. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met a Christian who's so harshly critical of everyone and everything that you can't stand to be around them and neither can anyone else? It's because they haven't suffered enough. Because people who have suffered have a gentle place created inside them. Circle the word respect at the very end of verse 15, the last word of verse 15. Have you ever met a Christian who's so disrespectful in how they speak about anything that's opposed to where they are what they believe, how they vote, what they stand for. Disrespectful Christians are Christians who haven't suffered enough, according to the Apostle Peter here, because when we suffer, it creates a special place in us that is respectful. And then I want you to write the word reflect down on whatever you're taking notes in, because in verses, in verses 16 and 17, we see a moment of reflection. In verse 16, there's a moment of reflection by those who are watching us in our suffering. And the Apostle Peter says, When people watch you suffer well, They're gonna reflect on who you are, on what they've believed about you, on what they've said about you behind their back. And they're gonna change your mind by the way they've watched you suffer. And in verse 17, he said, you're gonna get to a point where you reflect upon your suffering and you'd be crazy to embrace suffering. No one ever should embrace suffering, but you embrace what happened in you as a result of suffering and you reflect on it and you're thankful for that time in your life even if you'd never choose to repeat it. I heard one pastor say Jesus didn't suffer so we wouldn't have to suffer, but so that he could be adequate help for us when we suffer. When we reflect on our suffering, we get closer to Jesus. So we see when we suffer, God's not far from us. We see when we suffer, we learn actually things about God we would never learn unless we suffered. And then, number three, finally, we learn that once we've come through suffering, you're now spiritually certified to minister to somebody else who's suffering. Basically, the diplomas that God gives out for ministry, the certifications that God gives out, the training that God puts people through in order to minister to people who are hurting is he allows you to suffer first so that you can become gentle, so you can become respectful, so you can become reflective in the way that you think and in the way that you live and in the way that you minister. And then God turns you loose on hurting people so you can help them. In Ephesians 3.13 The Apostle Paul said this to the church at Ephesus. He said, my sufferings work out for your glory. He said, my sufferings as a minister, the things I've gone through, they're actually gonna work really good for you because me suffering is allowing me to minister to you while you're suffering. Look at verses 18 through 22. The Apostle Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjective to him. This is a really interesting and odd text in the New Testament, to be honest with you. This is where we understand from the Apostles' Creed, which we found written first in documentation in 8390, where the apostles said, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and then he descended into hell And on the third day, he rose again. Peter tells us that Jesus' suffering on the cross allowed him to minister to people who were in spiritual prison from the time of Noah. Suffering not only allows us to minister to people who are hurting, suffering actually compels us to minister to people who are hurting because we've been there and we know what happens when you come through the other side. In January of 2011, Danielle and I and my kids flew down to Atlanta um, to what I believe is the worst airport on planet earth. I don't know what you all think about your local airport, but I was told the devil went down to Georgia and he moved into the Atlanta airport and that's where he lives now. Um, He may work for Delta. I I don't know for sure, but possibly. Um, And for those of you who work for Delta, I apologize. I'm from Kansas City. I don't know anything. Um, But we came down here because we were getting ready to go on a journey to plant a church. And the reality is we walked into the church that Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, um, probably at the low point of our life spiritually, even though we were getting ready to embark on this great journey. Uh, If you were to kind of have a trend line of how our life was, probably the very low point was January of 2011. Um, Emotionally, we were suffering. Relationally, we were suffering. As a family, we were suffering. We'd sold our house and we bought a foreclosure that was about half of what we had before. We made our kids move school right in the middle of the school year so we could move to a new community and start church. Um, We sold our cars and bought used cars that broke down all the time. Financially, we were hurting. It's just a difficult time in our life. And we had planned to go visit 10 churches in the nine months that we were waiting to plant a church just to see what a healthy church looked like and to be inspired. And I reached out to kind of a mutual friend that Pastor Brian and I have at Liberty University and said, hey, I'm going to West Ridge, we're flying there. They haven't invited us. They don't know we're coming, but I'd love to meet Brian and say hi. Would you ask him if he'd pray over my family at the end of the service? He connected me with Pastor Brian's assistant, and she said, yeah, at the end of the last service, come up front, and um, I'll introduce you to Brian. And what turned into what was supposed to be just a short prayer turned into a, a meeting in the back room and lunch, and Brian said, tell me your story. So we told him, and Brian said, what church is, what church is helping you launch your church? We said, we don't have one. Uh, we, were, we were not really encouraged to do this, so we, we don't have anybody. And he said, well, what church planning organization or agency, like what, what church planning network do you belong to? And I said, I've never, I've never even heard of that. Um, and he looked at me. I'll never forget, across the table at Buffalo Wild Wings. Um, and he said, we're going to help you. What I heard was, you need help. Uh, and I did. I, I, needed, I needed a lot of help. I was like, God bless you. Um And he said, listen, I'm gonna have a guy by the name of Mac Lake. I actually went back in my journal. I wrote down Matt, M-A-T-T, Lake. I'm gonna have a guy by the name of Mac Lake call you Tuesday. He said, Pick up the phone when he calls and and he will help you. So Mac called me and said, Hey Christian, I'm Mac. Here's what we're doing with the launch network that's become the launch group. And he said, We want to help you. Brian said we should help you. And he said, I need to get you back to Atlanta for an assessment so we can just see how you and your wife are, are doing can you get back here? And I said, yes. So two weeks later we flew back to Atlanta and we had a round of meetings and I sat in the atrium of this church on uh, one of your couches up there. And after we'd gone through our assessment and Mac had heard our story, Mac told me, and I don't even know if he remembers this, but he said, Christian, you planning a church right now um, would be like the military sending a soldier who had a huge open flesh wound back on the battlefield." Like, you're not in a state right now because of what's going on in your life, because of the suffering, because of the pain. You're not in a place right now to do this. But he said, if you give us six months, we can help you. And what happened was over six months, the suffering that we came to Atlanta with began to slowly lift. And it's funny because when we were here in January of 2011, probably our suffering was the greatest threat to our future ministry, Because if we weren't able to overcome it, we were not going to be able to keep pushing forward. But at the same time, our suffering was our greatest hope. Because it was shaping us into who the people in Kansas City that would come to our church later would need us to become. This past Easter, we had probably our greatest service in the two and a half year history of our church. We had 80 people on Easter Sunday that stood to their feet and made a decision for Jesus. It was just unbelievable. But they didn't make a decision because of my message They didn't make a decision because of the invitation that I gave, but they made a decision because on that day, we did what many churches have done, maybe you've done here. Uh, We did what was called chalkboard testimonies and we had some people in our church who'd experienced life change through Jesus come up and share their story through a chalkboard. On one side of the chalkboard, they would write who they were and on the flip side, they would write what Jesus had done in their life to alleviate their suffering. And of the 25 people, I wanna share some of those with you today. One of them, my friend who came to our church the very first Sunday and became a Christian. He came up and his chalkboard read, lifestyle controlled by alcohol. And then he flipped it over and it said sober for 872 days. We had a young lady in our youth group who came up holding a chalkboard that said, held captive by anorexia, anxiety, and low self-esteem. And then she flipped it over and it said, set free by the power of God's grace and mercy. We had another person in our church, a young man in his mid-20s, Who held up a chalkboard that said, burdened by all kinds of sin. Then he flipped it over and said, Jesus gave me complete peace and joy. What a young mom in our church, a young mother-to-be who came up, who held a sign that said, divorced, my heart was broken. And then she flipped it over and it read, remarried, pregnant, and filled with joy. And then one of our pastor's wives who'd just been through a terrible church experience walked across the stage with a chalkboard that on one side said, empty and purposeless. And on the other side said, full of hope and purposeful. When you let suffering create a unique spot in your heart, you'll find a gentle spirit that gets created by your hurt. You'll find a respectful demeanor that gets shaped by your pain. And you'll find, that you'll find yourself reflecting on how to reach out to hurting people like somebody reached out to you. In just over two and a half years, our church has seen 500 people make spiritual decisions for Jesus. We've seen over 100 people baptized. Our church has given away more than a quarter million dollars to global missions organizations around the world. But the reality is it started in this church, in this building. When we were suffering, Westridge Church, Pastor Brian and Amy, Mac and Cindy gave us hope. When we were suffering, Westridge gave us hope. And today, we return that message to you. If you're suffering, there's hope. Today, I don't want you to leave hopeless in your suffering. I want you to leave leave hopeful in your suffering. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name today. Lord, certainly not grateful for suffering. I, I don't think that's the way we would phrase it. But God, I think some of us who have been through suffering and come out the other side, we're grateful for what it's done in us. And while we'd never choose to go through it again, we probably wouldn't change it either because it's created a special spot in our life for Jesus that would have never been there. And God, I pray for the men and the women and the teenagers and the children, the parents and the grandparents who are here today who are going through some type of suffering. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand or stand up or come forward, but would you just acknowledge to God if you're suffering today? Would you just tell him? Because I know in a room this size with this many people and later people watching online from their living rooms or couches or listening while they're working out, I know there's some people who are suffering. And would you pray that God would be more real to you in your suffering than you felt like he's been? Would you pray that God would teach you things about himself through your suffering that you would never know otherwise? Would you pray that God would give you hope in the midst of your suffering? The reality is that pain changes the direction of our story, but it doesn't have to determine the destination of your life. And with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, maybe you're in here and you're in a good season right now and you're personally not suffering, but somebody you know is, would you pray for them right now by name? Just in, in the quietness of your heart, would you, would you tell God what their name is? Would you tell God what they're going through? And would you ask that God may allow you to be the gentle, respectful person that they need to come alongside them? Would you not only pray that God would give them hope in the midst of their suffering, but would you pray that God would use you to speak hope to them in the midst of their suffering? Would you maybe commit to reach out and tell them about Jesus or invite them to church or invite them to a small group next Sunday? Would you think about somebody who's missing today? because of some type of pain or suffering who simply just needs a phone call and a reminder that there's hope in the midst of suffering and would you be the person to make that phone call send that text reach out by Facebook God we love you today and we need you today God thank you that that you warned us you taught us that in this life we'd have trouble we'd suffer Thank you that Job figured it out, that righteous people have hard days, they have hard seasons. But God, thank you that you reminded us you'd be in the midst of our suffering. And Lord, that hope that you give us, that faith and hope and love, it's enough to get through. So God, I pray that you'd be with us. I pray that you'd bless us. I pray for those who are lost from the course of their life that they charted because pain has changed their direction. God, I pray that they'll realize today it doesn't have to determine the destination. I pray they'll give their hurt to you. And Lord, you'll reroute their future right where it's supposed to be. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name today. And everyone said together, amen. amen.